Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Sean Cunningham with Remax in Henderson, Nevada. Last year, he closed 64 transactions with a total sales volume of $10 million. His average sales price was $151,000, of which 70% were buyers and 30% were sellers. Plus, Sean manages 260 rental properties, generating $310,000 per month in rents. He operates a team with five members, one property manager, one account manager, one part-time marketing assistant, one part-time virtual assistant, and one team leader. Sean Cunningham is the team leader of the Cunningham Group. He's been an agent for 13 years. Sean works the Metro Las Vegas market. His niche is house investors. In this call, Sean talks about creating an investor-based business, splitting his time between sales and property management, entering real estate at 17 as an intern, buying an existing team, generating 88% of his business from repeat and referrals, narrowing his database to his winning team. 17 people accounted for 60% of his business last year, emailing his investor insider list, investment property selection and preparation, property management, fee structure, software, and true expenses, tenant screening and qualifying process, team dynamics, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Sean. Oh, thank you. Hey, Sean, it's great to have you. Sean, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Happy to. Not much to talk about there since I pretty much uh, never had a real job. So I've, uh, I kind of came into real estate a little bit differently than most. It wasn't really my uh, second career. It was the first career, basically. And um, I first started in real estate when I was 17 and I was still in high school. And I've gone as an intern for marketing. So the first thing I did in real estate was uh, working with sellers, uh, you know, marketing the property, keeping up to date on what was going on with the property. Uh, you know, in some cases, I even had to talk to them when things weren't going well. And uh, I had a lot of responsibility at an early age. And I also went to Star Power, uh, learned about uh, other realtors and how much uh, people were, were doing at a young age. Uh, and I grew. I didn't grow up around people that had a lot of money, so it was kind of an unusual experience to be exposed to, you know, people who were doing well and how much uh, possibility there was. Uh, so that was my entry to real estate was, uh, you know, as an intern and also uh, through uh, Howard Brenton and learning more about the world at large. And I got licensed at 19, so basically I never really you know had a, a job other than real estate. So I've always, I've always been uh, associated with it in one way or another. Well, that's amazing. So. 
it sounds like you, you had this internship, you had a kind of a job at 17. How did that come about? Was that a family member or was that just something you read in the newspaper? Uh, through, through high school. I went to a special school. <laughs> that sounds weird. I went to, I went to a, a school where it was more college preparatory and so a lot more internships. Uh, and uh, it's funny, you know, the, uh, I remember being called in to, uh, for the opportunity to be a, uh, a real estate uh, intern and with three other people. And everybody was so afraid of uh, realtors. It's kind of funny. It's like, well, you know, if realtors don't, uh, you know, if they don't uh, sell sell a house and they get really unhappy. I, I remember hearing that. It, it didn't make sense to me at the time. And I was the only person that actually applied for the job. It's kind of funny. So everybody else just assumed it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't be a good opportunity. And and obviously it turned into a pretty good one for for me. Um, I was very fortunate to learn from a uh, one of the real. Uh, Visionary realtors in terms of uh, uh, marketing. He's also uh, Tim Cups, who's my my broker. And um, you know, at a, at a young age, I dealt with marketing. You know, things that weren't common. Uh, this is back when you know teams weren't uh, weren't as common. Um, this is back when uh, you know at the time it was unusual to have uh, you know things like websites for teams. And uh, it's just funny how things have changed. And this is stuff I worked on back then was websites and um, web marketing and a lot of things that were kind of unusual at the time uh, that we were doing. So. But that, that's what I learned as an intern in high school. So that was my, my entry. That's amazing. And while you were with the, that job, is that how you got to a Star Power Conference? How did you make it to a Star Power Conference? Well, Tim uh, took me. Uh, it's kind of, he jokes about it a lot now because uh, technically I wasn't old enough to go uh, you know, <laughs> without like, a consent form being signed. But he never really thought of that, uh, of that uh, thought of me that way. Uh, so we just kind of went and it wasn't even a big deal. Uh, you know, it was three of us that went, uh, another uh, buyer's agent as well. And Tim had been going to Star Power since the early 90s, so it wasn't new for him. But, uh, you know, he took me along to kind of see uh, things uh, from his perspective. Um, we kind of had a kindred, uh, you know, spirit in terms of we were always, uh, we always kind of, you know, thought bigger about things. And he taught me how to do that. And, you know, so we, we would talk, have long talks about, you know, how to do things better and, you you know how to be uh, more efficient and talk about marketing. We talked about you know, running a, a team. It, it was really a great experience. And going to Star Power at that age, you know, it was very—it's hard to describe if, if you know if you grow up not knowing that world exists in terms of uh, success, not just real estate, just success. I mean, the people can be—they can make seven figures in real estate. I mean, that—that that was uh, shocking to me at the time. And I've never—I haven't missed a conference since. That was you know 13 years ago. So. It's kind of been a, a process where every year I, I, I go and I still feel that magic from that first um, experience with people that were successful but also willing to share. And people, you know, people talk to me like, uh, you know, they treat me like a little kid. It was a, it was a great experience. That's awesome. You started kind of in the industry around 17. When did you get your real estate license? You said 19? Yep, 19. Okay, that's great. And so when you got your license, did you jump in full-time at that point or did you come in part-time? Well, well uh, you know, I was I was always full time. I just was on full time uh, selling realtor at nineteen. I was, uh, you know, the the way I I went to uh, I decided to stay in Las Vegas and went to UNLV. So I was going to school while I was you know in real estate working full time. So it was kind of a uh, a juggling act there. But um, this is probably about uh, I would say around nineteen years old is when I got my license to to sort of help out the team a little bit more at the time. I wasn't really it wasn't really my goal to be a, uh, a quote-unquote realtor and you know do a lot of business. Uh, I was just trying to help out the operation a little bit by being licensed. And I was never one that had to be told to do something or asked. I just kind of wanted to always you know do a little bit more and, and, and help a little bit more. 
And you know, early on in the process, you know, I was making uh, whatever I was making at the time. I don't remember it wasn't very much, but you know, I, instead of asking for a raise, I asked to become a partner in the business to to be paid a percentage of the of the team's revenue. So, uh, you know, it's probably around 20 years old. I think that happened uh, where I was I'm licensed. So I'm making a percentage of all the team revenue as opposed to a paycheck, and actually made a lot more money, of course, which is kind of funny how that worked out. Uh, maybe a little bit of luck there, but. Um, that was my next stage to become more of a partner in the business and to be more of a of the of to help Tim be more focused on selling and, and to help him deal with some of the day to day operations of, of the team. And we're looking back on it, it's kind of crazy that I was actually essentially running the team at one point. I'm like 20, you know, 20, 21 years old. Uh, where everybody's you know twice my age. It was kind of uh, it wasn't even seem it, it didn't seem unusual at the time, but looking back on it was kind of crazy, really. But um, uh, that's basically what I did. So I started more as a, almost like an operations manager, if you will, uh, of the team. Although I did do occasional transactions. Um, it wasn't until you know probably uh, I would say 21, I would think maybe 21, 22 range, like, where I started doing full time uh, real estate, where I was you know I didn't have the uh, the hat of being a, a marketing uh, director or operations director. Um, and then I, I pretty much managed the team. I did real estate full time, but also managed the other agents on the team uh, up until I actually bought the team, which was in uh, uh, 2006. So that's when I bought the actual operation from Tim. And now it's um, it's gotten more from there into you know uh, it's changed a little bit since then. But uh, you know it's, it's, it was it was Team Cups, and now it's Cunningham Group. Uh, we kind of changed the name a couple of years after that. So okay, so you came in. In a team environment, you joined a team to start. You you had come in through the internship, but then you continued, and you, you continued the first part of your career on this team, and in fact, in this marketing and operations side, and then after a couple of years is when you went over to the sales side. Is that correct? Yep. Uh, yep, exactly. Wow, that's great. When you made the transition over to the sales side, did, did things go quickly for you since you'd already been in the industry? Did you start selling a lot of homes quickly? Yes, but uh, yes, uh, but I don't want to make it sound like I'm some sort of a you know I was just selling um, Meister at the time. It just was an, it was an easy market. I mean it was it was, two, it was like 2004. You know we had uh, we used to put ads in, in the L.A. Times. We get 55 calls a week uh, from investors, and they would come to town, and we would we roll them through uh, three neighborhoods and new home neighborhoods. We just write contracts, I mean, it wasn't even you know well, what I'm saying is it wasn't a, it wasn't a market where you'd be tested as a realtor. Let's put it that way. It was a time where in Vegas. If you were, you know, if you, almost every car dealer had a, had a license. Almost every car car dealer in the casinos had licenses. Uh, lenders were, were realtors, and everybody was pretty much in real estate at that point in time. So, uh, because it was so uh, easy to make a sale, and also our, our sale prices were were very high. I mean, you know, relatively speaking, at you know, three hundred forty thousand was our average sale price in two thousand five. Uh, so, which is you know double what it was uh, last year. So you get in, the point I'm making is it wasn't a difficult market to kind of get into uh, you know running at that time. It wasn't it wasn't until years later when I went through the the downturn that I actually I think became you know uh, a, a self-sustaining realtor, put it that way, where I actually understood what it, what it takes to run a, a really efficient operation. You had to, had to go through the the really doing well, the not doing well to really understand what it takes to you know, to be profitable in real estate. I suppose just you know doing deals. So I hope that makes sense. Uh, that does, yeah. Now, how long have you been in the business now? How many years? Uh, in, in total, 13 years. And then, like I said, licensee, it's been uh, 10 years. How many homes did you sell last year? 64. Do you remember the approximate volume? Last year, 64 transactions. The total sales volume was $10 million. 
uh, and our average sale price was 151, which doesn't sound, may not sound like much, but actually the year before was 90,000, so it's, <laughs> that's pretty. It uh, went up. <laughs> it went up, yeah. Part, partially due to the market, but also we just kind of uh, adjusted our approach a little bit with our investors. But uh, yeah, it's it's 151 is pretty good for us uh, compared to where we've been. Uh, you know, the market dropped two thirds from 2005 to uh, 2008 in terms of uh, sale price. So, wow, well, that's a interesting environment. Uh, how many properties do you manage? You manage properties. How many properties do you manage? 260. Shifts a little bit, yeah, month to month, but yeah, 260 are kind of as of today. What is the total gross monthly rent that you collect every month? 310,000. Uh, it's our average for the first uh, four months of the year. Wow. Wow, that's fantastic. And so we're going to be talking about that. You have this investor-based model. You're doing some property management. And half of your income is coming from property management. Half of it's coming from the sales side. It's more than half. It's, it's more like 60% from property management. So property management drives the, the business in terms of the ability for the business to operate. Uh, we sell we sell real estate for pure profit basically. We're at the point now where we we make enough money in property management to do to not have to do anything else, uh, and we sell real estate so we can be profitable uh, if that makes sense. So, you know, we did 64 transactions last year. That's all profit. And whereas you know, whereas property management pays the bills. Obviously, it's a labor intensive business. You know, also requires office space, uh, a lot of other things that we need. So it's pretty good. And, I mean, we pay we get a salary too. I mean, we have a healthy salary and everything else. It's all paid for by property management. Well, let's do this. Let's back up for a minute. And for people that don't know, you know, because this is going out all over the nation, where is Henderson, Nevada? Oh, it's just Las Vegas. It's you know, it's you know, I live in Henderson. It's you know, I can be I can be at the at the strip in five minutes. You know, maybe let's say ten minutes. I can be at the strip in in normal traffic. So it's it's basically Las Vegas. You really wouldn't know the difference uh, if you were from out of town. But uh, you know, it's it, Henderson is as close to the strip as. The city of Las Vegas is actually it's kind of an odd thing. So it's you know, the strip is not in Las Vegas. It's out, it's in unincorporated Clark County. So Henderson and, and Las Vegas are basically the same. Henderson, the the, the, the what differentiates it is it's much more uh, suburban. Uh, it's also a little bit more upscale than uh, Las Vegas. You know the area around the strip. So so it's it's kind of like a, a suburb of Vegas. Does that sound right? Oh yeah yeah yes I'm sorry it's a suburb I could answer that quickly yes it's a suburb of Vegas that's a quick answer. <laughs> How big is uh, Las Vegas, the the whole metro area that you're working? Two million, just just past two million. When I moved here in 1993, it was well, it was the one million, so we're yeah we've doubled. Uh, so we're at two million today. Um, the city of Henderson is the second largest city in the state, which is 270,000 people. Uh, so that's and Las Vegas, of course, is the biggest with about 600,000 people. And the rest of the metro area is, is all uh, you know unincorporated areas. And I work the entire market, by the way. We do we do all the whole two million. We do all of it. It's not that big. It's about you know maybe half the size of Phoenix in terms of land area. So we do the whole thing. Could you describe your current real estate market? Prices are up 21% from last year to this year in March. It's the most recent number I've seen. So and that and again it depends on where you are. Certain areas have not gone up very much because they didn't really go down very much. And then other areas have gone up you know 40% or more. And it depends on the price range and locations. 62% of buyers in March were cash buyers in Las Vegas, uh, which is a which is a crazy number. It was pretty much half. All of 2012 was pretty much half uh, of buyers were cash, and it's a very it's a very new phenomenon in Las Vegas. I mean, as I'm sure you know, we had the foreclosure crisis, so most of our buyers during the boom market uh, 2003 through 05 were were actually loan buyers, 
and now they're almost all cash, so it's a different element than what we've dealt with in the past. Our REO, REO bank repo is about 20% of the market. Uh, short sales have dropped off considerably in the last uh, several months as well. We actually have more equity sales than we do anything else right now, and that's and that's a dramatic change from a couple of years ago. So right now we're actually doing right now I'm dealing with far more equity sales, and I have more equity listings right now than I've had in the last you know four years combined. I mean it's a it's a big change. So. Are you back up to where you were before the decline? Have prices come back up to where they were before they started falling? The market took off in 2003 the first time. So 03, the market was about normal, then it just went crazy. That's uh, a lot of different reasons. Uh, a lot of it due to population growth, but also just the easy availability of, of financing, which is, uh, was a nationwide issue. Uh, so 2003, prices uh, started going up. 04 was the, was the pinnacle of, of craziness, and we have 55% market-wide appreciation in one year. The market pretty much plateaued in 2004. It still went up in 2005, but not very much. And then, the, and then it just pretty much, uh, the wheels came off in, you know, 06, 07, 08, when the market just tanked over a period of uh, three years, by about two-thirds. Uh, so we went from an average you know, sale price in the city of well over 300000 uh, to where we were, we were, well, 117 at the bottom. Uh, and for us, our team, it was much lower than that, you know, in the, in the 90s. Uh, because we don't really deal in the high-end clientele. So uh, the market uh, fell off considerably. So if you bought your house in 2000, let's say, uh, before the boom market, there was a period there where it fell off so much that you actually were upside down, uh, much further back. Now if you bought your house, say, 2000, you're, you're okay, you can sell your house again. And if you bought your house in the peak of the market, you're, you're well upside down, and you probably will be for many years. But if you bought before the peak, you're okay now, if that makes sense. So the, the market overcorrected downward is what I'm saying. So at some point we had, you know, we were selling single family homes for 70,000 where you couldn't build them for that price. So, uh, and that's when we actually uh, sort of uh, engineered a, an investor based uh, business, which I'm sure we'll talk about that. But that was based on when the market overcorrected too low uh, and you could buy a house for well, well less than you should have been able to. And now it's corrected a little bit back to where it should be. Um, and there's some other issues why we have a little bit of a challenge in terms of inventory, but uh, does that make sense? It does. And so that that was going to be one of my questions. I think you just answered it is if you had started the property management first or the sales first, it sounded like you were kind of a sales organization. The the bottom fell out. Property management I started until 2007, basically. So it was like, yeah, six years ago. Let's do this. Let's go into lead generation and marketing. Can you tell me your top five or six ways that you generate business? Our business last year was 88% repeat and referral. And that's actually, you know, there's a difference. There's a different schools of thought in real estate. You know, some people uh, who I respect or believe you need a marketing-based uh, operation. Uh, I, I actually have purposely, uh, we've purposely gone to a referral-based operation. So I say that so you understand that we don't spend a lot of money on marketing and it's not a, it's not something that, um, it, it's, it's done that way because we put more of our effort into things that are free, quite honestly, it's just the way we are. So most of our businesses is generated through our, uh, through referrals. So right now, our business, by far, is repeat referral. We, can, we break that down more than that, though. We break it down based on, based on uh, we call our winning team, you know, our, our clientele. or It could be past clients or anyone that we know who is a, is a, is a fan of us or who's willing to go out and actually uh, give us business. Uh, and we break them down to ABC. So you know, our, our, our fear of influence, our database, past clients, we put them all together. We call it winning team. The A category or VIP is a very small group of people that either A, buy a lot of properties from us 
or they refer a lot of people to us, and those people generate the majority of the revenue uh, in the business, property management referrals, listings, and buyers. Uh, and then we also track referrals from our, our B and our C category winning team uh, uh, members as well. So that's more the way we look at it based on you know, how, our refer- how our database uh, generates uh, business for us. And then out, there's small things outside of that, you know, internet. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a substantial part of the business you know, where it really makes a big, a big difference. We get a lot of real referrals too, but it's not a, like I said, 80, 88% is, is, uh, is people that we know sending us more business. And actually, that, that strategy, you know, it's interesting, that strategy, our business has increased by a large percentage in the last couple of years uh, based on changing who we work with to focus on a clientele that is more referral, uh, is more likely to send you a referral. So when we, change, when we, when we refocused our business th- uh, three years ago to, towards investors, when our average sale price was 90000 uh, and you, know, you could either, you know, a lot of people got out of real estate, obviously, because that's just, you know, but when the market changes, people get out of real estate. So, you know, 90000 uh, instead of complaining about it, we said, okay, let's focus on investors because investors refer a lot. They don't need to see the property, so we can do a higher volume of, of real estate. And investors, uh, that's exactly what's happened. We did a large volume of real estate in order to make up the, you know, the sale price differential. And it, it's created our business today where we have a lot of referrals. I mean, we, we get... Um, uh, I mean, I just had a client refer me to someone who bought, you know, six properties cash, you know, 200000 each. And, that, and that's pretty much what our business is. I mean, it's, it's all referral-based. And we, we focus on that through certain strategies uh, that we do for marketing, which I don't know if you want to get into that or not, but that's – and we have marketing strategies that we focus on uh, to generate more revenue off of the past client database sphere of influence. I do want to get into that. I want to talk about this past client sphere of influence part of your business, this 88% of your business is repeating referrals, and, and how you're making that work. You've mentioned a lot there, and we we'll want to start breaking that down. First of all, let's go back to the ABC real quick and how you're breaking this list out. A, you said they're your VIP, buyer, seller, rent, uh, or referral, how do you break it out A, B, and C? What's the differentiation? Well, A is what matters most. And I, I tell every, every, every realtor, everybody starting real estate, I mean, you have to have an A group in order to uh, – well, you really should have an A group. I would hope so. So our, the A group are people that are your, your greatest supporters. So, you know, right before this phone call, for instance, I sat down with my personal trainer. Uh, he was kind of funny. The guy, he's a personal trainer. He's not a – you know, it doesn't make – you know, a, a massive amount of money. He's just a person who's really, really, you know, he's very sociable. So he knows, he knows everybody. And he also is very good with his, with, with his money. So he, you know, he invests with us a lot. But he's sent us, you know, 15, uh, 15 closings in the last uh, two years, all turned into property management accounts, or most did. So, you know, he's a VIP client, if that makes sense. So he's going to get um, our, he's going to get more um, marketing attention paid to him, you know, which, which is not complicated. I mean, we, we make a point to try to socialize more with the VIP clientele to get more communication from us. We communicate with everybody you know, well, but we try to give them extra communication. Uh, just little touches to let them know that you care about them and that they're important to you. And that, that A clientele, you know, I'm sure you've heard the 80-20 rule or, or the 95-5 rule, but that A clientele generates uh, the vast majority of our business. Uh, you know, it's just, I think it's over 60% last year is from the A clientele. And, you know, one person can, uh, we've had one person buy 70 properties and refer us, you know, 10 or 12 more. And those are your A clientele. And every realtor has an A, an A database that generates more business. It's just a matter if you track it or not. And then our B clientele is our people that, that are fans of us and they would refer us business if somebody asked them, do you know a good realtor? 
So if somebody you know, walks up to you and says, you know, do you know somebody in real estate because I want to sell my house, they're going to give me, they're going to give them our name. So they're in the B category. The A category are people that actively go out and try to find those people. And they talk to people they know. They try to find any scenario they can to get us business. So it's, just, it's a slight difference. It seems like a slight differential, but it's actually a huge gap between the A and the B category. And the C category are just people that we know. And, and they may, you know, they, they, they probably like us, but they're not, you know, they're not in a position to send referrals. And it's not that the B and C is pretty much the same. I just like to kind of focus on getting C people to B if we can. But A people are, are what they are. You really can't make a B person an A person. They, they're A person based on what they do for a living, based on the personality, based on our relationship with them. And that's just, you know, it's, it's not something you can actually create, in my experience, an A client. How many people do you have in your overall database? Our database, is, uh, we, we have 480 people in our database, uh, in, our, in our winning team. Let me re- re- make that clear. So I actually have no idea how many people we have in our database because I really don't, you know. Our database is every agent we, we work with, you know, escrow people. It's a, it's a, it's a big database. But our, my winning team category, I, I, we used to have a, a much larger number, and I pared that way down because I, I like a very clean database. And it's funny, almost immediately once we did that, once we really cleaned up the database, we've really had a much stronger um, uh, business, more profitable business, because our our database is so much stronger now. So if I have winning team people, I know their birthday, I know their, you know, there's stuff you should know, birthday, anniversaries, but also what they like, you know, is important, you know, what they kind of food they like, what they like to do for hobbies, so that uh, when something comes up, uh, I, you know, I can reach out to them and show them that I actually know who they are and I care. And people want to refer. I mean, it's 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 the whole nature of the of uh, of society these days. I mean, Facebook, Yelp, everything we do now is based on referral. So people want to refer. They want to know someone who does something good. And investors are, are key because investors investors tend to know people who are like them. You know, uh, I've, almost all my clients are are, are full time. Uh, you know, they have full time jobs. I mean, you know, doing something other than real estate. They're you know doctors, a lawyer, accountants. Uh, uh, it could be realtors, even. I mean, they're they're they have jobs, but they also know people like them that 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 save their money, that make a good income, and they want to be able to tell someone that I did this and it was great, and then that's a referral. So investors are 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 in my I don't have a scientific information, but in my opinion, they're the most likely to refer of any client that you can work with, multiple referrals. Because the people they know, it, it's, a, it's entirely based on your ability, your financial wherewithal, and your desire to uh, invest. Well, Sean, you've got these 480 people. How would you break them out into your groups? Are, are all of those A's, or how many of those 480 are A's? A, A's is very small. A's is very small. It's purposely small. And if you're I mean, the A group, actually, hold on a second. I'm sorry. Let me just pull it up. 17, 17 are in our A category right now. So, and people do drop out. People can't drop out of the A category depending on the situation, but it's 17. It's a very small number. That's great. So that's a very small, narrow, highly focused group. You know these folks are going to be referring business to you, and you're able now to spend a lot of effort on those 17, whereas if you had 1,700, it'd be so hard to even talk to them. Yeah. That's that's a great idea. This is just the other people that aren't aren't important. I mean, we have, like I said, we have we have all our tenants on our database. We have a lot of people in the database. Our goal is to our goal is to take people out of the general database of people we know, and if it's possible, try to get them into a winning team category, even if it's a C category. So the goal is to grow that, but we grow very deliberately now. I used to think, well, a bigger database is what you want. It's not you want to you want a highest quality database you can get of people that actually you, you actually know and they know you. You know something about them, so 
if we can get you in the winning team category, that's great. But again, the winning team A is just it, it is what it is. I mean, you meet you meet someone and they're they're A category based on your on on things just you know intrinsic. So yeah, 17 people, uh, and that's that's the majority of our business last year is generated from referrals from the winning team category. And if we you know, like we have, I had a winning team client that referred me another another client who became on on the A category. Uh, because uh, you know she just has the ability to send referrals. I mean, she knows people, a lot of people. So, so A is only, a is only two percent of the database. I mean, it's a small number, um, or less than two percent. It's just a small number. So, in our, our most people are in the winning team B and C categories, uh, just by default. That's just where people are, unless there's someone that we like a past client that I don't want to talk to ever again. In which case, I wouldn't put them in the winning team. But uh, for the most part, anybody that we know and knows us uh, will be in the B and C category. And did I understand correctly? I, I thought I heard you say earlier that the A category referred about sixty percent of your business last year. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, sixty percent. Well, you referred or actually, you know, they referred or they actually bought something themselves. I mean, almost every, most people in the, in the A category actually buy real estate on a regular basis. So, um, and we, we have certain clients that will buy a house a year and they'll refer, you know, five or six more, or some people will buy five houses a year. It just depends on their on their financial situation. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an important group. I mean, you have to, and it, it, like I said, it's purposely small. It's not. I can make it bigger, but I really want to know who the who the supporters really are, so we can take care of them. Approximately, how many people are in the B and C categories? We have four hundred seventy people in the winning team category. So it's four hundred and uh, four hundred fifty people total. Almost all are going to be in the vast majority in the C category. The people in the B category as well. Yeah, seventy five in the B category, and the rest are in the C category. So if I understood that correctly, you have about 17 people in A, maybe 75 or so in B, and the remainder just under 400 or C. Yeah. And it's, we're just talking winning team categories. It's like a pyramid. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it should be. With your highest quality up at the top, a small group of people that you can focus on. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Now let's let's start talking about how do you stay in touch with these folks? What What do you do for the folks in, for instance, this A category? How do you make sure that they're constantly thinking of you and referring business? Honestly, the the A category is really not that hard. I mean, you're, it, people are. If I if I really don't like you, you know, I, you're not in the A category. You know, it's just and I learned that a long time ago. So someone, if, if someone, if you don't like someone, and they don't like you. They're not in the A category. So people in the A category, we tend to like, and it it doesn't mean we're we're friends. It just means the people that you can easily communicate with. So it could be it could be Facebook, it could be uh, you know Twitter, like it could be any, you know any other normal social means. The A category people are the only clients that have my personal direct you know line, my cell phone number, so they can call me or text me on my personal line. Well, that's why it's a small number, by the way. So it's you know those people are it's it's not difficult to keep in touch with people that you're always doing business with, or always sending you referrals. Uh, we 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 make an we make a strong effort to to show them our appreciation, you know, as much as we can. So uh, even if it's a dinner, you know, on the birthday, we send them to a nice dinner. I mean, you can't do that for every client, you know. So uh, if, I, you know, one of my eight clients, uh, you know, for a birthday, we send him and his wife out to a nice dinner. Uh, or if they're in town, most of our clients still live in Vegas. So if they're not in town, then we'll, we'll send them out to dinner, you know, where they live. So we just try to find ways that are personal to them to show appreciation, it, not just for, you know, thank you for, for sending me a referral. I mean, that, that's something you do for everybody. This has got to be for no particular reason. You know, you know, you know we're thinking of you, happy birthday, happy anniversary, you know, happy home buying anniversary, whatever it may be. That's your eight category people that you're going to be uh, doing more for them uh, that you just couldn't financially make sense doing for everybody that you know. I mean, you can't send everybody to dinner for the birthday. So. Now, now, everybody we know, you know, we'll 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 send a birthday card. We'll uh, we'll keep in touch with them on a regular basis. 
we, we get to, we do newsletters every month. Uh, so our goal is to reach out and have a touch with all of our winning team database uh, every single month, uh, one way or the other. And more than uh, more, I think we have right now uh, 25 times a year we touch it, rather we know in the winning team database. So it's a little bit more. Uh, you know, we'll do multiple things uh, during the holidays as well. So the winning team is, you know, you you, you stay in touch with them the way most people sit in real estate do. It's not very complicated there. The A category is people that you. You treat them more like they're, you know, like like a, a friend or a family member. You really want to show some appreciation all year long, uh, all the time, not just when they send you a, a referral. You mentioned that you contact these folks 25 times a year. Do you have a, a schedule that you set up at the beginning of the year to make sure that you're doing that? Oh, of course, yeah. We have a we have a, have a marketing. Uh, uh, we have marketing. Our other part-time intern, she's been an intern now. She's an assistant who does that. Um, that's her. We hired her specifically to make sure that. We were doing a, a better job staying in touch with people, which is, which is the most uh, – and this is why we don't spend a lot of money in marketing because, to me, the greatest rate of return in real estate is, is staying in touch with people that you know. And not just – you know, you call them, call them, of course, but you know, keep in mind, our clientele are, are not the, the normal clientele. I mean, we're, our clients are investors, even in all three categories, mostly investors. So not all, but mostly investors. So most of our clients are people that have full-time jobs, uh, they have other things going on. They're not, you know, they, you you gotta just kind of provide value to them more than just, uh, you know, call them and say, you know, you know, you know, who do you know that wants to buy or sell real estate? You know, the, the traditional question you want to call and ask. Well, for investors, I found it more valuable to send them properties, you know, to send them deals, and that's that's been what changed our business around really. Uh, and when the market tanked, as we started providing information on, on a weekly basis, not you know, more not just every month, we actually send them out, uh, you know, good deals in our market, and we we break it down for them, we send it out to them. And you'd be amazed how if it's someone who's inclined to invest or who knows people who want to invest, that has more value to them than anything else. And that's how you get people to actually send you referrals. You've got to make it easy for them to send you a referral. So you give them information, they can just forward on to another person they know, and that person calls you up and says, you know, so-and-so told me that, uh, you know, they bought a house with you, you know, last year and I want to buy. And also investors tend to be, you know, they buy when they're, when they, when they, when they have a, when they're ready to buy. So they may not buy for a year, but you keep in touch with them. Uh, then one day they're ready to buy, and then they, you know, they buy a house with you. So. Because uh, a lot of people will have a million dollars sitting in the bank, and you know sometimes they're just not they're too busy to invest, and sometimes they're more interested in investing. It just depends on their personal uh, situation. Okay, so do you send out some type of hot investor hot property list once a week? Yeah, and if so, do you send that by email? Yeah, email. It goes out uh, every uh, goes out every week. It's a uh, well, it's not out of town. It goes out every single week, but it goes out. It's a it is a Originally, our, our original goal was, this is three years ago, three and a half years ago, we started doing this. We did 75 deals that, that first year doing it um, when our average sale price was 90000 So, I mean, you, you know, it's a, our original goal in doing the list was, okay, you know, I always believe that if you, if you provide value to the universe, let's say, that, that you'll always be taken care of. You'll always have income. And so, you know, when the market uh, tanks, you have to say, well, what kind of value can I provide in this particular market I'm in? And that market, and also still today, with all these, you know, investors. I've always, my very first client when I was 19 uh, uh, was an investor, shockingly enough, and they've always been something I'm comfortable with because it's more numbers-based. And also, investors don't need to see the property. So we would actually start sitting out, we would go, we would get in the car every week and go out for three hours um, uh, every week, all over town if we needed to. We would find good deals. And this is when the market was a little bit slower, so you could actually, you know, it was a little bit easier. So we find a house for 70000 let's say. Let's say $70,000 house. I mean, you know, that's, you know, most people would say, I'm not going to make any money on $70,000. 
But for us, we would go out and find the property. We we pull, do take our own pictures of the property, not the MLS, so we could show the actual damages in the property, paint, carpet, you know, countertops, renovations, whatever. We take our own our own frank pictures of the property. We do our own numbers now, our cap rate analysis to determine what the rate of return would be if you pay cash. And this is key, you know, cash. Because at seventy thousand, you'd be amazed if you're under hundred thousand, people will send you cash. I mean, it's just they don't even, you know, it's not a big deal. It's like you know, buy a house at seventy thousand. Sure, here's here's you wire the money and you close. Uh, they do a home inspection, so it's it's easy, and they don't have to come to Vegas. I have many clients that have never been to Vegas uh, ever, uh, and they bought multiple properties with us because it's cheap and it's easy to do. And then we provide the uh, uh, the property management, which is the key element to this whole circle. Is you know, we sell a house for seventy thousand uh, off our list. Then we, we turn into a management uh, contract where we actually, at that time, we make more money off management than we would off a commission. So the goal was to drive up the management business to the point where it would be where it is right now, actually. So that, that one little, it's free. It's beautiful. It's a marketing piece. It's free. I mean, you, you, know, you get in the car, you, you take a couple hours to do that. You send it out to your database. And we actually got more referrals uh, off that than, than anything else where people get the list. They weren't ready to invest. But they knew somebody who was ready to invest, so they forwarded it on to somebody else. And it's a very simple, free way to generate uh, business just to provide value. And then, and then by default, people would, would send – anyone to us that they should invest, they would send them to us. You know, someone who has money, they're making uh, you know, 100000 bucks, making 47 bucks a month on it, uh, go talk to Sean uh, or Kyle, and then that would be uh, a deal. And uh, that would say probably 90% of our clients over the last three years, investor clients, have never seen the property they buy. I mean, it's just amazing the, how few people we actually will sit in the office with them and, and, uh, and go sell them property. I mean, we send them the property, they buy the property, and then we manage it for them. These properties that you're selling, are they typically houses, multi-units, commercial? What are they? Single family. Uh, we, the, the approach we take as a, as a, as a business is that we, we sell properties that I actually want to manage. And uh, I don't want to manage multifamily. Vegas multifamily is different than, you know, if, you're, if you, a lot of markets have a lot of multifamily. Vegas does not have a lot of multifamily. So it's, it's much more, uh, it's a rougher locations, uh, difficult tenants. So we sell, we sell what we want to invest. And if somebody calls and they want to buy a multifamily, I refer them to somebody else. So we do single family residential homes that are low risk. Uh, homes, you know, relatively speaking. Yeah, at one point we were getting 12, 13, 14% cap rates. Now it's more like 5, 6, 7%. But still, you know, people are still buying just because it's, a, you know, it's better than alternatives. But um, yeah, we focus all on single family. We don't do condos either. Uh, we don't sell them uh, to our investors because they're, they're more difficult to rent uh, than a single family home. So um, if they can't buy a house, we'll figure something out to get them to where they can buy a house at some point. You've mentioned a couple times the word cap rate. What is cap rate? Uh, cap rate is a cash on cash return. So, you know, it's uh, it's based on a simple way to look at it is you take your the total amount of investment into something. So if you buy a house for a hundred thousand and you have to put ten thousand into repairs, and this is the key part of the cap rate, is repairs. So, you know, you pay hundred thousand bucks but you gotta put in paint and carpet and you know, uh uh countertops and appliances, maybe it's ten thousand bucks. So really you're paying one ten and then you got maybe another couple thousand in closing costs. So maybe it's one twelve you're paying out of pocket. Uh, how much your actual net return every year after property management uh, fee, after taxes, insurance, uh, maintenance cost? Uh, you know, if, if that's you know whatever number that is, you divide that into the gross amount you paid out, and that's your cap rate. So you 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 know if let's say hundred thousand dollars is your total amount you spent, 
$10,000 to make a year of 10% cap rate, which, which is, you know, we found an early time. If, if we could find a property for under 100000 that were that would cap out for more than 10%, I could sell out to people, you know, all day long. You know, just, it wouldn't even be an issue. We, you know, like they'd be Canada or Israel or South Korea, and they they buy it, just send the money, you know, we're good to go. And the market's, obviously, market's changed. Where we're more in the 180000 200000 range now, but... Uh, by establishing that business then, it's made it much easier to deal with it now to where we, we have more people that are that have the ability to buy at a higher price range. But the cap rate is key. If you, for investors, want, investors want information easy to, to digest. They want uh, numbers that, are, that make sense and that are accurate. And they want someone who's, who's going to make it easy for them to uh, own the property. And you know, property management, if you're running an investor-based business, property management is, is the most important thing to provide. And, you know, for years, we, we actually referred out property management uh, clients and, you know, they have bad experiences and if they don't, if they don't enjoy the ownership experience, they won't buy more properties, which is, which is the entire uh, bedrock of our business. So uh, for when we started property management up uh, seven years ago, the goal wasn't at the time to make a lot of money off it. I know it sounds weird, but I wasn't trying to, to you know, do what we're doing now. I was just trying to make it to where our clients have the same level of service uh, on that side that they do when they buy the property. So they'll keep buying. And it kind of morphed into, you know, a huge business uh, for us, uh, just, just based on doing our job well. So, Staying just uh, for a couple more minutes here on the sales side, when you are analyzing these properties for these investors, are you using any kind of software or are you just putting it on a spreadsheet or Excel? Okay, so you're just looking at, at trying to get that cap rate. Are there any other numbers that you're trying to provide to the investor? Nope, just cap rate. Uh, we don't discuss appreciation. Uh, I haven't discussed appreciation with an investor in probably four years um, because uh, keep in mind, you know, investors investors really took it hard when the market tanked, and so in the beginning, you know, the market was still declining when we started when we were selling property. So it didn't do any good to start discussing appreciation because I, you know, who knew what the market was going to do. It was, a, it was very early on, it occurred to me that, you know, ca- the cash flow actually, you know, there was a time where you could buy a house for $70,000 and actually make, uh, you know, 12, 13% cap rate and pay yourself back for the entire cost of buying the house within a matter of years, just, you know, five or six years. So if you can, if you get 100% of your money back through, cap, through cash flow, it doesn't matter if the property goes up or down. Now, it just so happens that most people that bought, you know, in, that, in the beginning when we started doing the, we call it our investor insiders list, when people started in the beginning, they, most of them have actually gone way up in value, but that wasn't the reason they bought. They bought for cash flow. And if cash flow is consistent, you can own a property forever. And that's the beauty of, of, uh, of what we do is that if, by focusing on that, just those very simple numbers, it's easy to understand for an investor. It's easy to back up our numbers too. And this is a key thing. You have to back up what you provide. So we pad the numbers and make sure they're very conservative numbers so that when we sell them a house, we're not, we're not you know, over-promising to them because we're going to manage it for them for the long term. So our, our investors are happy. They're, they, they get more than they think they're going to get, and they refer and they repeat. Now you've mentioned this Investor Insiders Program. What is that? I, I got the term at Star Power. I, don't know, I can't remember which one it was. It was years ago. There was a, there was a great uh, talk by um, an author uh, where he discussed uh, how you, people in the, you know, in the Generation X, uh, they like to be insiders more. You know, so, and most of our clients are younger, believe it or not. I mean, they're, they're mostly, uh, we have some that are, that are older, but uh, the vast majority are, are going to be under the age of you know, 50. So um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a different element where we try to show them they're getting information they can't get through any other source, which is true. I mean, there's no, there's no resource uh, anywhere that provides you 
actual information about a property where that, that investor wants to know, where you actually, you know, because you go to realtor.com, it tells you a sale price, the square footage, you know, it doesn't tell you anything. We actually tell you the cap rate. We, we actually show you photographs of the actual property uh, that, that are helpful. You know, we take pictures of things that are missing. If, if you're missing a, you know, a water heater or an AC unit because you know, the property's been vandalized, we have a picture showing you that, and we have a price uh, built in for that cost. So for an investor, that the insider's list is information you can't get. Now, it's still that now, but now it's actually more, because the market's tough to buy in right now, it's more properties that are not available to everybody else. You know, if it's a property that's not listed yet for, uh, for whatever reason, you know, we put it on our insider's list so people can see a property they can actually buy and not be in a bidding war to get the house. So it's got dual purposes now where we provide properties that are available uh, before we go on the MLS and also properties that, are, that have that detailed uh, information on, on cap rate and you know, repairs. Now, is everyone on your winning team, are they all considered these insiders, these investor insiders, or is this a smaller group and they have to ask to be on it? How does it work? Well, you, you, can't, you don't want to send out emails to people that, that every week that are not on the list. So, yeah, the people that want to be on the list, it's, it's a... Uh, I think right now the list has got maybe 100 people on it, so it's a it's a it's a different group of people. It's not people on the list. They they may not be winning team at all because if they're a client that hasn't bought yet, they're not going to be in the winning team. If that makes sense. I mean, the winning team you you, you at the very least have had to either buy real estate or refer us real uh, a client. Whereas if you're just a lead uh, that wants to invest in, in real estate, you're not in the winning team yet. If that makes sense. So like I said, the database itself is bigger than the winning team. The winning team are people that I'm. I'm focused on communication with. If you're if you're in the investor insiders list, that means you have the capability of buying, or you've raised your hand and said you want to buy an investment property. And then people may sometimes they raise their hand, they want to buy, and they're not able to for you know a long period of time. So they'll get the list every week to stay for staying in touch with them, which is more which is more you know valuable than anything else. And those people will be you know there was a time when we found a list in the right in the beginning where we found a list three properties a week, we sell three properties a week. Uh, sight unseen. I mean, that, that was kind of the way it was working. Now it's more like one a week we might sell off the list because it's a little bit different. Uh, it, it's gotten to a point now where it's just we realize it's just, it's valuable for communication with people as much as anything else. Where people, you know, the property on the list may sell so quickly that you can't you know buy it the way you used to be able to, but people get it and they they value it so much that when they are ready to buy, it's you know we sell them something. You know, or if they're ready to refer, uh, they forward the list on to somebody else. If that makes sense. So the market has changed. The list is still our primary marketing piece we do for lead generation and for referral generation, I should say. And it's still free. So it's a beautiful thing. Well, let's do that. Let's move into your property management side of your business. You mentioned you have 260 properties under management. You're bringing in somewhere around $310,000 a month in gross rent. What is your monthly gross commission income or gross income that comes out of the rental side of the business each month? Uh, right now, the first three months of the year, we're at 34000 a month in property management income, uh, which is roughly 11% of the amount of money that we pay out to the owners. We collect property management revenue through a lot of different uh, uh, ways, so, which we've learned through experience how to do that. I mean, that's one of the Property management is very, uh, it's very different from uh, selling real estate because it's, it's, you actually charge for what you do, whereas all of the real estate, you know, you do what you do and hope you get paid, it seems like sometimes. So it's, you know, it's not the same element. So we charge for everything we do, and you figure out how to charge uh, while not harming your clients and making sure your clients getting the best service they can get and also taking care of the, you know, the tenant to where you don't have issues with them. So uh, right now our fee structure is to where we're, we've gotten it to where we're actually generating more revenue now 
with the same number of accounts that we had you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, we used to have the same number of accounts, and we lost like 30 to foreclosure in one year uh, when the market tanked. So then we kind of built back up our, our management business over the last three years to where it's, uh, it's much more profitable now than it was then uh, because we, we, have, uh, we have more investors that we, that we deal with than just people that want to rent their property out, if that makes sense. So initially when I started property management, you know, we, we took a lot of people that, that were trying to avoid foreclosure and now almost all our clients are investors, which is what we want. They're easier to deal with. They, you know, they're, they're properties that we've sold. So we know they're going to be easier to manage, easier to rent out. And also we have better systems in place now uh, to allow us to do more with, uh, without staffing up necessarily. You start to talk about the income side, the fee structure side, and you mentioned that there are multiple streams of income coming in for different things. Could you walk us through the list of, of those different income streams on the property management side? Well, one thing I know, you know, I, I've, I've done, uh, you know, Star Power, I've done the property management class a couple times with other managers. And one thing I've noticed is that people charge very different things. And, you know, they, it, it tends to come out about the same in the end. It's just how your, your market works. Like some people, some places will charge a whole month of rent up front, and we don't do that here because you can you couldn't really do that. You know, we said we charge a setup fee, which is 2.95, for new new property management clients, and we charge uh, a lease renewal fee uh, when we have to go and renew and negotiate a lease renewal with the tenant. You know, so that's more the way we kind of approach it. There, we have, we have application fees to the tenant as well. Uh, we also we also keep the late fees if the tenant doesn't pay on time. We have to kind of, you know, go get the rent. Um, you know, we, we charge the late fees. We keep the late fees, which we didn't used to do. But then one day, we, you know, uh, we kind of realized that actually we're doing all the work, so <laughs> we should keep the late fees. And so we started doing that. And, and uh, so things like that, ev- eviction fee, there are a lot of costs that tenant pays if they don't pay on time that we, we also get for revenue. So, I mean, I, I could, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a long list, but it, it's, it depends on a lot of different scenarios. Uh, you know, if someone's late or, or if they're, on, or if they're uh, renewing the lease, uh, or if you rent out the property, there are some additional costs uh, involved. But we've got it down to where it's a very simple situation for the homeowner, uh, for the actual landlord themselves. We charge them, uh, you know, a certain percentage for the management uh, fee every month, and then we charge a minimum cost, which we didn't used to do as well. So if we sell, if we sold the property for seventy thousand, the rent's seven hundred dollars a month. You know, we 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 make more than our percentage because we charge a minimum uh, rental amount, and then also our lease renewal fee uh, and our uh, our setup fee are the, are the three fees that the owner pays. So it makes it a little bit simpler for the for the client not to be nickel and dime to death, uh, and we make up that revenue through the tenant and other means to try to make sure that we're you know, maximizing our our return. So it's difficult to get lost over over our phone call. You know the the uh, specifics so. But you know, anybody wants our, our management contract and can, I'm happy to send it out. It's not a, it's not a secret. I just, you know, it's easier that way. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, let's walk through that. Uh, let's start first with the the landlord themselves. You said you have a setup fee. You charge them two ninety five to get them started. What do you do for the two ninety five? Is that going out and finding the tenant and bringing them in? No, that, well, the, the, the two ninety five is just it's just an initial cost to set up a new client. I mean, they're they're, they're two ninety five is just an initial fee that you pay when you when you sign up for, for property management. And like I said, it, it uh, the, the the you know marketing what we do is also included in that as well. So it's it's everything kind of below the one cost to make it a little bit simpler for the owner. Now a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealG TV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. 
Okay. And then you mentioned you also have a management fee. Are you charging a percent? And if so, what's the percent that you charge for management? Uh, we charge 10% or uh, we charge a minimum uh, uh, one ten a month. Very good. And then you said you have a, a lease renewal fee. Is that a flat fee or is that a percent? Uh, yeah, it's no flat fee, $95 for lease renewal. Okay. And that lease renewal, that's going out and finding a... Oh, that's just renewing the, the lease with the existing tenant. Yep, renewing the lease. And it's, you know, that's, it's a, we didn't used to charge that fee. And, and one day it kind of became... Property management's a great business because you, you learn so much over the years. I mean, we... We didn't used to charge that fee, and we, one day it became apparent, you know, Deborah, who's our, our account manager, you know, there's a lot of time involved with negotiating a lease extension. You know, sometimes it may be um, you have to actually fight to keep the rent the same, and a lot of different things go into it, so we charge for that as well. Like I said, property, property management, you charge for what you do for the most part. So it's a, it's a great business uh, if you have the, the mind for it because, you, you know, you don't have to – it's not necessarily commission-based so much. I mean, you pay a certain fee just to manage the property, and, you, and if you do more than just manage the property, then you charge for that as well, if that makes sense. So it's, a, it's not an all-encompassing commission that you charge. Sure. Now, you also mentioned you're getting some fee income now from the tenants. How much are you charging for the application fee? Uh, application fee is uh, 75 per adult so, or 150 uh, for two for a couple, which includes the criminal uh, background check. Okay. And then you have a, a late fee. What's How much is the late fee? $25 a day starting on the third day. And then you also said there's a eviction fee. What's that? Uh, I want to say it's 250 for the eviction fee. Actually, I know it's 250 for the eviction fee. And that's charged to the landlord to evict the tenant? No, to the tenant. Well, it depends. That's why it gets complicated. It depends on... Most tenants, you don't really want to evict them. The goal is just to get them to uh, to get the uh, the rent uh, up to date. So we don't do a lot. Of, we actually don't do very many evictions, as you might think, uh, because we have a process in place that's designed to. Uh, we don't let things linger. So you force the tenant to make a decision immediately on uh, what they're going to do. And most, almost all tenants will choose to, you know, bring the lease current. So and then they pay the fee as part of bringing the lease current. So. You know, they pay they pay fees for you know if it's a bounce check fee or it's a eviction cost. These are costs that are generated, but they're not doing what they're supposed to, so they pay the cost. The only time the owner will pay the cost is if the uh, the property actually goes to eviction, and if that happens, there are other costs too. But that's that's very rare. We probably only do you know two or three a year evictions. You know, it's, it's not very common. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But you got to do your work. Every, everything in real estate is is about doing your homework up front. You know, like I didn't do for today's call. Now everything about real estate, so you got to do your homework up front. So in in, a, in property management, you gotta you gotta do it correctly when you rent the property, and then you don't have to deal with the evictions later. So, um, and that's something you kind of learn through a, a process of trial and error, depending on your on your market. You know, you determine, you know, uh, what kind of tenant can you get. Uh, you learn how to uh, explain to owners, you know, the, the what kind of approach to take in terms of uh, marketing. Sometimes they they may want to you know try to get more rent. But it's more important to get the best possible tenant that you can get, even if that's a little bit less rent, uh, or you know, a tenant that's more stable financially. So it just depends. Also, buying the right kind of property is very key. I mean, that's the most important thing. Buy the right kind of property uh, in a location that's going to attract good tenants, you know, where, where tenants want to live. Essentially, you know, you want to buy where tenants, where you know, a lot of tenants want to live. You want to buy there if you can. Then also, you want to, no matter where you buy, uh, you also want to make sure that you. Uh, Get the property nice, which means you know, if if it needs, uh, if it's got cheap cheap vinyl floor, put tile down. They'll be cheap, basically. So a lot of investors like to be cheap, uh, so we have to kind of beat into them the importance of making a property nice 
so that when, it, when it's nice, you always have tenants that will stay longer and that will be higher quality. And the reason you hear, you know, you always hear horror stories about property management from, uh, from you know, the public is because they tend to have properties that are not attracting better tenants. You know, they, they don't put any money into them, and so they get the lesser quality tenants that are not like to pay on time. Sure. Well, first of all, let me just say thank you for walking through your fee structure. As we all know, the, all these fees are negotiable all over the place, but it usually helps to have a, an idea of what's out there if you've never done property management. So that's why I asked you to go through that. Thank you. No, I'm happy to. I just, I just, it changes. I've noticed that it's so wildly different from one market to the other, management fees. That's why I'm kind of like, you know, you're, you really got to look at your market and talk to people in your market and find out what they're doing. Because management, I mean, I've seen people charge things that I, I, I would never charge. And then we charge things people would never charge. So, because, you know, Nevada is a landlord-friendly state. That's the other thing to keep in mind. We're, not, we're the opposite of California or New York. You know, we can evict a tenant in a couple of weeks here. You know, it's not going to take six months. So it's a whole different market. And it, also, if you're, if you're deciding whether or not you want to get into property management, it's very important to understand your market and also also understand the, 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 the eviction process, uh, you know, how you deal with tenants is very important. So you know if you're going to get into a, a quagmire. And, in my, and also one thing I will mention, in, in my experience, most property managers are not good at what they do. I mean, I'm just being, they're just not. I mean, it, it's one of those things where I, when I, I can name every property manager that I know that I actually would refer a client to on, on like one hand. Uh, because most they get into it for the wrong reason. You know, they, they, they don't, you have to have the, the mindset that you represent the, the, the owner client, but your job is to help them not get into trouble legally and also through, uh, through fair housing. It's a big thing with property management. You have to understand fair housing as a realtor very well. You have to understand you know, the, the, the issues that the owner may experience. And you know, I've, I've, only, I've, I've been sued once in, in six years, which is, which is extremely low, let's put it that way, <laughs> for property management. Very, very low. I mean, property management is very litigious if you don't know what you're doing. So um, that's all. Let's uh, break out some of the ideas that you had. First of all, you said in order to get a good tenant, you, you want a great property, a quality property. You mentioned location being important, and then you also mentioned the quality of the condition of the property. Let's, let's talk about that first. When you are looking for a location for a tenant, are you trying to find a house that's around other rental houses, or are you looking for a house that's in a neighborhood with mainly owner-occupant? What, what are you looking for there? Yeah, that's, that's, well, that's actually very well put. I have, I, have that conversa- I have that conversation every day with investors. It's uh, if you can buy a house with in a if you can if you can go higher in price and buy a house that's in a predominantly owner occupied neighborhood, it's a better long term investment. It's better uh, it's a better uh, opportunity to find better tenants. Now it, it you know it depends on what your situation is. If you, if you if you go and buy a house at a lower price point, you may end up having to do that. But even still, if if you you, know, you focus on buying a neighborhood that it, that is uh, well kept. And then that, and obviously that's, that's really what we do a lot. I mean, most of our investors don't see the property. I can't stress that enough. So when I, when I, when I go out and I, I sell investment property to an investor, we really, you know, we really focus on making sure that, you know, it may be two, three years down the line, they actually see the property, that when they go up to the property, they're going to be impressed with it. It's going to look nice. It's going to be a nice neighborhood. So by, by doing that, we also end up getting properties that are more desirable to tenants because they want to live in nice neighborhoods. Uh, and, all, and, we, and if you walk into a house that needs repairs, be honest up front with the, with the client to tell them, you know, when they buy the house, you got to go in and, and put some money into the house. And it may be in good shape. It may be, you know, uh, it may be uh, technically good shape, but if it needs to be upgraded to the standard of the neighborhood, then you, you want to make sure they do that. And, you know, we've had you know, investors, most, our clients have a lot of money, but they tend to be, you know, they tend to not want to spend money sometimes. 
So you really have to, you know, uh, hold your ground with them, make sure they understand uh, the value of, of investing and in, in, uh, upgrading the property uh, to get a, a higher quality tenant. And I want to make sure I, I you know, quantify what a qualify what a higher quality tenant is because I, you know, I want to get fair housing issues. I mean, we're talking people that are financially more stable, that have higher credit scores. Uh, that's what we want to get, people that, that have a stable job, uh, stable income, a good uh, uh, rental history, uh, high cycle score. That's what we're looking for. And those tenants can tend to be a little more annoying to deal with because they tend to be anal. Uh, but those are the tenants that call you and, and uh, complain about things are actually your better tenants. And that's the ones you never hear from for five years are not always your better tenants. So... Uh, as a property manager, make sure you understand the, the importance of, uh, of explaining to your client you know, how to get a better tenant up front to avoid issues. Because there's no worse phone call to make to the owner than your, the tenants destroyed the property and, make, and, uh, and uh, moved out, uh, break the lease. Uh, you don't want, you, that's a phone call you don't want to have uh, very often. So, Sure. I, I always thought of quality tenants quite simply. One, they pay the rent on time. Two, they take care of the property. Does that sound about right? Uh, yeah, well, well, you also want tenants that are going to stay in the property longer, and that's a very important thing that, that investors investors don't really uh, you know pay attention to. I mean, if if, if it's a nicer, I'll give you one simple example. If if uh, if you walk into a backyard in Vegas, and yes, it's Vegas, we live in the desert, so you know, if if I were to show you rental properties to rent, the majority of ones you're going to see have no backyard. I mean, because they're investors, they don't care, they don't live in the house, they just want to put it out there, and rent it, and get it out quickly. And we tell our clients, landscape, landscape the backyard. I mean, it's, it's a simple thing, but in Vegas, it's not common necessarily if, if the property was never an owner-occupied property. So, you know, it may cost you five grand to do it, and, you know, you, you don't want to do it, but landscape the backyard. And just by doing that one simple thing of making a backyard livable, a tenant will stay in that house uh, longer because, you know, there's no reason to move. If the house is uh, not livable for a tenant, they're going to move out the first chance they get. And it's, it's always cheaper to have a tenant stay in the property than not. Not, not just from marketing, not just from a standpoint of obviously you have marketing expenses when you have to re-rent the property, but you also uh, you also don't you know you, you, if obviously vacancies are not ideal you know for for an investor and we have very very low vacancy rates and we always have because we you know we focus on getting better tenants uh, so that's that's the main thing. You mentioned the possibility of repairs either when you buy a property or uh, unfortunately if a tenant does some damage. Do you oversee those repairs? And how involved are you, and do you charge for that time? That's a great question, actually. Um, it's, a, it's always been a bit of a struggle for, for us because, uh, uh, to answer your question, we, we always, we've always overseen the repairs, and we've never charged for it. So it's not, you know, and it can be very time-consuming at times to deal with it. But, you know, it's just, and my brother and I, we've always kind of debated back and forth, and do we want to charge or not? And we, we just have not done it because it, we we feel it's, it's sort of a, the it's sort of the, the marketing pool of our business is to an investor is uh, we make it easy for you right easy is the word for investors it's got to be easy it's got to be simple it's got to be low stress now some of our investors will oversee their own repairs because they're just you know if, if their personality type is where they, they they can be overbearing in that regard then we let them handle it if they want to. But the majority of our clients, we handle the form, uh, and obviously we have our own uh, network of uh, vendors that we use as well that we know can get the job done, and we'll oversee it for them and get it done, and we don't charge a fee for it. So, uh, And, you know, it's, it's worked pretty well for us so far in terms of uh, repeat and referral, so we've kind of decided to stick, that, stick with that. But I, I know a lot of managers do charge for uh, overseeing repairs, and they're probably not wrong to do that. Let's go back to that qualifying the tenant. Could you break that down for us? 
if uh, somebody were to uh, make an application, well, I'm already jumping the gun. Somebody says they want to rent out property A. What's the process that you walk them through? Well, the first thing is fill out the application, uh, and they have to drop it off with the application fee in a cashier's check and money order form. Uh, we don't accept personal tax. Uh, one day, maybe we'll be able to accept uh, credit cards where possibly, but right now we don't. It's just cashier's check money order. So they bring it into the office, or they you know mail it in there throughout the state, and then uh, we run their uh, uh, application. We run their background check. Uh, we discuss it with the owner. Uh, and, you know, and, and this is very important. I, I can't stress enough the importance. Uh, of of that process, that, that, that application process, that point from when you get the application to when you rent the property out, that's where people get sued all day long because there's fair, fair housing is everywhere there. You have to you have to have a repeatable, predictable process that's in writing so everyone knows what it is. The, the homeowner needs to know what it is. Um, the um, uh, tenant needs to know what it is. So that process needs to be the same process for every single tenant. Uh, and so when, when the tenant walks in, they drop up their application fee. Uh, we run their application. It's a you know it, it's the same application. We use our own application that's that's uh, you know approved through the uh, board of realtors. And uh, when they're approved, we talk to the owner. We have to we only talk about certain things with the owner. We do not get into how many kids they have. Uh, you know, and just we just be we're extra careful about fair housing. So we don't discuss anything anything related to the protected classes. We do not discuss uh, with the homeowner at all. And that and that by the way has has created some real friction with home with the. Uh, with the landlord or the or homeowner or the investor, whatever you want to call them. That's created a lot of friction over the years um, to the point where we've been very, very, uh, uh, we put that in writing up front and made very clear that we will not discuss with you anything other than their, 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 their you know, credit score. We'll discuss with you the financial, how much money they make. Uh, we discuss those things only with the homeowner to protect both of us because I don't want to ever have, a, you know, I don't want any, any idea that we ever have a conversation about protected classes. It's, it's, I mean, that, it's that important. If you don't understand those kind of things, yeah, you can get uh, you can get shut down. Really, it's that that big a deal. Let's talk about between the time they write in the application and the time you talk to the owner. What types of things? What kinds of information are you pulling up? You said credit report, background. At some point, you said criminal, and you also said financial. Help me break that out into little pieces. What exactly is that? Yeah, rental history. Um, so we'll. We'll request uh, the rental history from the previous uh, two landlords. And not the, the last one is kind of not always useful because sometimes they'll tell you what you want to hear to get rid of them. So you want to make sure you go back to uh, two, uh, uh, two properties ago to, to get a rental history report. Uh, and also we look at the, uh, the, the FICO score is a bit overrated to some degree because you're, you, you know, in, in Vegas especially, people do not have good credit. Uh, in general, uh, so and also, so many people have gone through foreclosure or short sale that you know it's just if you eliminate people based on foreclosure or short sale, you would never rent a property out. I mean, it's that, it's that common. So we have to kind of go through a, a process where we set aside certain things and look uh, not just FICO score. We look at we look at a FICO score if it's really really low, like you know 400. Uh, you know, the, there's major issues there. Obviously, you just know that's going to be the case. We look at also, you know, their history of paying on time for where they live, either either uh, you know through rental history or through the uh, through the FICO score. If they had a foreclosure or a short sale, we usually set that aside and just look at how much they were paying on the foreclosure. So if their foreclosure payment was you know three thousand a month and their renting house was twelve hundred dollars a month, then you know you just feel good about that. And then obviously we look at uh, rent uh, at income as well and also job history, how long they've been on the job and how much money they make is the is the primary thing you look for. Uh, criminal history is, is something we do. Uh, you, you're looking for, you know, obviously things like, uh, you know, uh, 
property damage, vandalism, theft. Uh, it, it, you can look whatever you want to in terms of in terms of deciding if you want to rent to somebody or not. You can look at the criminal history report uh, any way you want to look at it. But usually there are things on there like domestic violence, things like that. So um, you know you have to kind of the owners decide if they want to rent to somebody with that kind of issue or not. Let's go back to income. How do you verify or confirm someone's income? You pay stub, or usually, uh, if they're self-employed, you look at tax return, last two years tax returns. You know, kind of like we would. You know, same thing if you're if you're buying a house, you just look at the at the verifiable income, and you want to make sure they make at least three times the rent. And again, that's in Vegas. I mean, I, you know, I know some markets are the rents are extremely high. So, you know, our, our average rent is you know twelve hundred and thirteen dollars a month. So. If they make three times the rent uh, in household income, then they're good to go on the uh, uh, for our purposes. Unless, unless the owner over, yeah, the owner can always override you if they want to. I mean, you always want to make give the owner the chance to. Sometimes it can be a very difficult property to rent, and you want to take a chance with somebody. And if the owner wants to do that, then we make them sign off in writing that we we advise them against it and that they want to do it anyway. So, uh, and that happens sometimes. I mean, it's it's the owner's property to decide what they want to do with it. We just give them the information that we can give them. How long do you want to see that they've been on the job? At least two years, if possible. It, it, and it depends. You know, it always depends. It, it's never a, it's never a hard and fast rule. I mean, if they're if they're in uh, the same exact industry for 20 years and they just change jobs, I mean, it's not always a big deal. So you kind of you have to you have to kind of use your use your judgment and look at it that way. And I know it sounds kind of weird to say it that way, but you just have to you have to kind of uh, go based off of what's there. But but if there's a if there's mitigating circumstances, you need to take that into account as well. Uh, but you know, we try not to do that if we don't have to. But it kind of depends. If you got ten applications on a property, which sometimes we do, it's easier that way. But if you have one application after a month on the market, uh, because it's a tougher one to rent, uh, then you have to really step back and and, and make sure that you, you know, make sure you can't find any way to get around it. And sometimes maybe where if if it's, if it's tougher to rent, you may ask for an additional security deposit if they don't meet all the criteria. You may ask for additional month security deposit or two month security deposit. Um, so there are other ways you might be able to mitigate if their application is not perfect and you don't have any other applications. You've got a lot of properties, 260 properties. That's a lot to keep track of. Do you have software that help you keep track of these properties? Yeah, we use PropertyWare, uh, PropertyWare, uh, W-A-R-E, uh, PropertyWare.com. It's an online-based uh, software. First thing I did when I started property management is get, is get software, which is key. So I always tell people that want to get into it, make sure you get your software up front, make sure your paperless up front. Do not keep paper files. It's 2013, and uh, management. If you start keeping management files in paper form, it can overwhelm your office. I mean, it's, it's you know, imagine 260 uh, <laughs> property binders in my office. I mean, I have to you know, quadruple my office space. So, get a get a good online system. Get a good paperless system up front when you start property management. It's key, and take your time with with the system. Uh, our system is used by our entire office. It's a little bit. We have a little bit of an odd situation here because our office is. It's almost a property management brokerage in some ways, and we have 2,000 properties in our office uh, that are under management. So we actually all we all work with the same software program now. It didn't used to be that way, but eventually we kind of all melted into uh, the same software program, uh, which is PropertyWare, in order to handle uh, rents. And we can also do direct deposit for our owner accounts through there, so we can pay owners electronically, which is also very important to do. And uh, uh, also tenants can pay electronically on there as well if they need to. If, if, uh, we try to make them do it now, actually. And also, the, if the owner needs to send you money for repairs, they can do that through the system. It also allows owners to log in to their uh, owner to log into the website and see their statements 24 hours a day, which is which is always important when you're uh, discussing what you do for them. That they can they don't have to wait for a, a paper statement to come in the mail. You can log in and get it all year long. 
Yeah, that was, uh, you're starting to get into the area I was going to ask next, which is the flow of money. Uh, how are you collecting this rent? Is it in cash, checks, electronic? And then also, how are you paying out the expenses? Uh, how, if you're writing checks for all that, collecting and depositing checks for all that, it seems like it would get kind of uh, laborious. How do you handle that? Uh, it's, it's, labor, it's labor intensive. I mean, no question about it. It's, uh, uh, I, you know, my goal is to get everything, is to never have to write a check. Uh, but I don't have full control over that because we, we run, like I said, it's a, it's a, uh, we have, we have a large, we have 19 property managers that run their own businesses and, uh, for over 2000 properties. So it's a, it's a little bit different element to what we can get done. Uh, but you know, right now our owner checks are e-deposited, so we don't have to write checks to owners. Okay. And I actually, when I first started property management seven years ago, uh, back when we didn't have any of this stuff, uh, that was the first thing I've changed is to, is to not mail owners. You never want to mail owner a check. Uh, for the rent because they'll, they'll never get it. It seems like so. It's like, so the, that owner e deposit is so key. So when when the rent gets paid, uh, we try to get the the tenant to pay electronically, which which the majority do. We're still not 100 percent, but the majority of tenants will pay electronically. Uh, so the rent automatically goes into the uh, trust account, and then we you know we take the rent. We subtract out our management fee. We subtract out any expenses for the month. And then we send the money to the owner electronically as well. And they usually get it the 12th, you know, 12th of the month. It usually takes that long to process uh, all the bills and all the uh, uh, income for the month. Let's walk through the rental collection side. Do you have all the rents due on the first? And then what happens if the rent's not paid? You know, what's the schedule or the process that happens after that? Well, on day, on day three, uh, Deborah will call. That's our, our account manager. She does she does most property management related items these days uh, in terms of the day to day. I guess you would say minutia of property management. Um, she's really really good, and that's that's always you know that's another conversation I suppose. But the the main thing is on the third, you have to call every tenant that has not paid on time. It, it, it shouldn't be a huge number. And it, it, sometimes it'll be a situation where it's just uh, an unusual month where maybe the, the, the first fell on, on a holiday or something like that. And people, you know, so it's not always because people are, are trying to be malicious or just not pay. Sometimes people just, just don't pay for whatever reason. So you have to call and get the rents in. And if people don't pay in the third, we file the eviction notice immediately unless there's some sort of arrangement that's been made. Uh, but even, even then, we almost always file the eviction notice uh, immediately because you want to make sure that you preserve the owner's uh, legal time frame to evict the tenant if you have to. And also, it forces the tenant to uh, to understand the, the importance of paying the rent on time. There's nothing that makes a tenant pay nothing makes a tenant pay quicker than a, a notice on the door of eviction. But you know, you don't want to post those if you don't you know if, if it's just a oversight. So that's why you make the phone call first and try to get you know verbal arrangement with the tenant to get the rent in the same day. Because on the four, on day four is when you really are you know filing the eviction notices. The rent is due on the first. If it gets to the third and they, you haven't received it, you make a phone call. If it gets to the fourth, you start to file the paperwork to start the eviction. Yeah, we we file, we post a notice immediately. I mean, you got the moment, and that's done through a third party company. You post a notice on day four if you don't have the rent in. And like I said, it's rare, it's extremely rare we evict somebody. But that that notice, if you haven't made an arrangement, the, the most important thing to keep in mind with tenants not paying is when they don't respond to communication. Is when you have to do that. So. You know, I, I tell you know when I used to do all the lease signings, I would tell tenants when they walked in, you know, I would tell them that the only reason people get evicted is if they don't communicate, and that's which really true. You never, you know, we would never evict somebody if, if they're responding and people don't communicate and they and they try to you know bury their head in the sand. You got to post a notice to kind of bring them back to reality. Uh, but most tenants, if they don't pay on time, can be dealt with 
um, you know, just through a phone call. You can deal with it and get the situation resolved. And we, we, if we file a couple of eviction notices a month, we probably only do a couple of evictions a year. So it's, you know, it's not, it's not a common thing, but you have to make sure you follow uh, the most important thing in property management as, you, as a property manager is to make sure your, your systems are as predictable as you can make them. That way there's never any, you know, uh, concerns that you're treating tenants differently for whatever reason. So, you know, if, you, if, you're, if your system is to file eviction notices on day four, uh, and, and, you know, you want to try to make sure you do that to maintain the same system uh, over and over again. And then you have to go to court, you know, which we which we do on occasion, for whatever reason. Uh, it's better if your systems are, are are clean. If you have a lot of notes, uh, and if you have uh, verification of what you've done, so you can show that. If you have to go and fight a tenant about you know whatever reason. When do the late fees start to kick in? Is that on day four? Yes. Yeah. What expenses are associated with property management? You mean my expenses? Yes, you as the operation, the business of property management. What expenses do you have to run that? Well, you know, the beauty, the beauty of property management is that it, it's a, it is labor. You know, which you know, labor is it's all, it's mostly all labor. It's a, you know, we we pay money to, we have a full-time assistant, um, uh, Deborah. who's really, really good. We pay her really well. She does a, she's not, you know, a nine-to-five worker. She she'll she'll do what she has to to get the job done. So we pay her well. We give her bonuses as well. That that that's you know that is the majority of the expense. It's going to be labor and property management because you you know if you if you pay for something with regards to a property, uh, you charge it to the owner. So if I put a sign up, if I have to put a for for rent sign up at the property, which we don't do a ton, but if we have to do that for a property, we charge that cost uh, of directly back to the owner for a sign company. If we have to send a courier out to do something, we charge it back to the owner. So in property management, you can charge the owner the thing that the cost you incur. Uh, and then it's just it's a labor it's a labor intensive business. So, and our, our situation is di- like it's different than most I've, I've I've encountered because we we do so much in a centralized fashion through the office, which is not common, especially for Remax. So we do a lot through the office. So I, I pay the I pay the office a lot of money, but that part of that goes towards the work they do in terms of handling things that if I were an independent agent, I would have to pay for myself or an independent brokerage, just to say, I have to pay for myself, like, you know, like a reception for the front desk or some of the financial uh, uh, items that are handled, uh, they do through the office. That's interesting. So yeah, you mentioned the brokerage seems to have a focus on the property management. <laughs> it's funny how it works. <laughs> it's funny. I started property management seven years ago and everyone, uh, everyone told me, uh, don't do it. You're crazy. You're going to get sued. Uh, including the broker, and then, uh, and then once once uh, we started doing a lot, I mean, other other people too have done really well with it, and it, it kind of exploded. And now we have like I think we have 19 property managers uh, last I checked. So it's a it's a big uh, operation. Our office has essentially become a property management firm. Uh, and we do a lot. Of, I mean, we actually do we do a, tr- a tremendous amount of sales, but it's just you know property management can tend to overtake things um, because it's so especially the first of the month because there's so much uh, labor involved with it. So. You know, first of the month, this place is a, is a rent collecting facility, basically, uh, instead of a real estate office. So, uh, yeah, but, you know, that's, that's the way it is. I mean, it's fine. That's the way it is. I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a good business if you, if you know what you're doing. Well, if somebody were thinking about starting a property management division or part of their, their brokerage operation, what are the downsides? Is there any downside to being the property management business? <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of downsides. It's funny you say that. that. One thing I would say, property management is, is litigious, meaning that you, you, most property managers I, I know get sued a lot. They get, they get taken to uh, court for dumb things. Um, and, you know, when I, when I first, when I was trying to get into property management, you know, seven years ago, in fact, I was at Star Power uh, at the conference, taking a property management check, you know, a little tax session. 
and I remember, uh, you know, Nate Martinez, um, I love that guy. He's, he, he's talking about how, how many times he, he got sued in the first year. And, 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 and funny enough, of course, I came back home and immediately wanted to start the management business because I, I understood the, once you understand what the pitfalls are, that, that you, you can't, um, if, if you don't have the time to be personally involved in the, in the, in the launch and in development of the business, property management business, then I would not do it because it, you, you can't just start and delegate the whole thing off. Uh, because you're, you, there's, it's, it requires someone who really, it requires someone who really understands uh, the the value of the little things. And most and usually, when you hire people, even if you have like a really anal assistant, they don't know enough about the the legal side of it to to do everything right. So you have to make sure you really stay on top of them early in the process. And so when I started property management, I was still doing sales, and I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have any staffing for it. So I had staffing for sales. So my sales assistant at the time uh, did a lot of the property management, and it, it was a messy. The first couple of years were really messy because we were doing so well. It's funny that I took like seventy accounts in the first year, and uh, we were doing so well that you know I took on anything that came in, and I, it was a very, it was a big uh, strain on the business. But I didn't get sued, and I didn't get taken to court. I made mistakes, of course, and I had to pay for some of them, but. Uh, I didn't have to uh, deal with the lawsuits because I was on top of everything. I made sure I knew, I understood what the actual processes were before I started hiring off staffing for property management. And eventually, my brother uh, came on to take over the, you know, the, the majority of the of the workload in property management uh, as, as the actual licensee property manager. But I didn't do that until a couple of years in when I actually knew what the business was. And, I, and so seven years later, we only had one lawsuit, which was over, you know, just over, you know, it was like a little. It's just a stupid thing. So if a, a tenant sued us because the owner went into foreclosure, which is kind of funny. So and we, it cost us like 5000 bucks in legal fees to get, to get rid of it. So it's very annoying to deal with, but that's the only lawsuit in seven years. I know, I know many that get sued multiple times a year in property management um, for, you know, for, for fair housing, for all kinds of issues. And it doesn't matter if you do something wrong or not. It matters if you keep your systems if you don't have the mindset to have, a, to have a systems that are repeatable, that are trackable, if you don't have the ability to keep notes of what you do, uh, I would not get in property management because when you go to court or someone tries to sue you uh, and you can't, sh- you can't show you know, that you, do, you did this, this, and this, that's when, you get, that's when you get sent to court and you lose more often than not. And we, when, when, when tenants try, try to uh, take it to another level and we can show them our detailed notes of what we've done and we can show the contracts that we have that are, that are, that are designed to, you know, to preempt issues, that's why we avoid going to court because you know, they can't win. I mean, we, our, our situation is so clean and simple that, and they have nothing but their, you know, but their word to go on. You asked me what, the, what the, um, uh, the, the pitfalls of property management are. The one other thing I want to make sure people know is that when you, if you're starting a property management business, you need to have the, if you're, if you're an overly emotional person, uh, and you, you tend to, you know, you're not someone who, who can sit in front of someone who walks into your, if someone walks into your office and says to you that they, you know, had a horrible medical situation come up and they can't pay the rent and they don't know what they're going to do. If you're the kind of person that can't do your job in that situation and you're, and you're going to become emotionally involved with every single tenant, it, it, it's not, it's not for you, in my opinion. It's just not. I'm not saying I'm not an empathetic person. I mean, it's not my, my, I'm a, my personality type is, is to focus on the facts and the contractual obligations as opposed to the emotional, you know, interactions of, of, of uh, each person you deal with. And tenants, with, with tenants, well, the reason people need you as a property manager is because they can't have that conversation either. I mean, it's like, you know, homeowners can't sit with a tenant that they're renting out to and, and, have, and, and actually hold to the lease when a tenant starts crying in front of them. And that's why most people that don't have property managers have an you know, unfortunate experience with a tenant where they get taken advantage of, and I've seen it frequently. So 
as, 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 a, as a realtor, that's, that's a valuable skill to have, to be uh, heavily empathetic. But as a property manager, you need to be more, uh, a little bit more, I don't want to say harsh, but you got to be more focused on taking care of your client first as opposed to making the tenant feel better. Well, let's, uh, let's do this. Let's switch gears and talk about your team. Tell us who's on the team. I'm looking for positions, titles, and then also what each of those positions does. Team is, uh, uh, we, have, uh, we have three. My brother, uh, Kyle, is the property manager. Lee is the uh, lead property manager. Um, he handles 99.9% of property management. Uh, so that's, that's his job description. He also he does work with investors also actual buyers now. Uh, he's got more into that now. We've gotten a little bit more advanced in our in our operation. So he does that. I do all the selling. Uh, I do the listings and, and buyers uh, as well. I do all the listings. I also do buyers. Uh, and then Deborah, who's our account manager, is the uh, is sort of the right hand for us. She's, you know, she does everything, really. I mean, it's just kind of, uh, she, has, she has a lot on her plate, to say the least. Uh, she's actually a former client of mine who I hired. And she actually is the more, she is the more sensitive uh, type, as you will. So she kind of fills in our personality gap in that way, where you know she's she's more of the personnel we'll have a heart-to-heart conversation with you, and and uh, and she's great for our business. I mean, our clients love her. She does a great job. She's now focusing more on property management almost entirely, and I've outsourced to a virtual assistant um, some of the uh, sales uh, paperwork elements of what she used to do so she can focus more on property management. And then we have a part-time college student that helps me out with uh, marketing-related issues. And that's the entire team. We have three full-time people. We have a part-time virtual assistant and a uh, part-time college student that helps us. The virtual assistant, is that someone in your office, around your office, across the country? Where are they at? She's out of state. It's just someone I know. It's just out of state. It's someone I I know. It's not a, you know, there's no company or anything. She just... uh, She's an extremely anal retentive uh, person, which, which I, was, I was looking for someone who would be so anal retentive that they would annoy me. And uh, thank God she does. I mean, I love her. <laughs> she's, she's, she's got a person that keeps us uh, keeps our paperwork uh, in order. And so that's why I wanted out of, out of her. She just does paperwork. She she makes sure that we have what we need so we can we can uh, get paid when the deal closes. So that's all. I mean, it's it's an out state lady. She's a you know she's a stay at home uh, mom. That's that's all she does for for us. And you know she doesn't. You know she probably works. You know, ten, it depends on how much, uh, how many closings we have at the particular point in time. But we, we pay her, you know, on a, on a contract basis. So we don't. You know, she's not an employee. We only have two, we have two employees. We have one full time, one part time employee. Everybody else is is uh, anything else we pay is just uh, you know independent contractor work. My my biggest you know thing you know when we, when uh, is to uh, uh, this, this is maybe a tangent, but. Biggest thing is that uh, I used to have four. I used to have four assistants back in the day. Like seven years before I did property management, I had a lot more staffing. Actually, it was a funny thing. And when the market tanked, we actually kind of people left by attrition, so I never had to actually get rid of anybody. And then when we kind of restructured the business, I learned the value of people. I mean, you have good people. Like if you have a really good person, uh, you can actually get a lot more out of them, and you don't need to hire two. So you know, we actually have less staffing now, and we're and we're doing more business than we've ever done, uh, really, right now. I mean, this is you know, we'll have a record year in 2013. And uh, we, have, we have fewer staffing than we've ever had uh, because we, we kind of have found a way to, first of all, you focus on what your business is. You try to do fewer things so you can do them better. Then also you hire the best people that you can. And then we try to avoid payroll. And we, I just try to avoid payroll as much as possible. So we have one and a half employees and then everybody else, we just piecemeal out for, uh, for you know, to a VA or a courier or whatever it may be um, as an independent contractor type stuff. I've got to assume that by doing that, by having a smaller staff and being more efficient, that makes you more profitable. And I'm sure there are people listening to what we're talking about and wondering the question, is your operation profitable? 
Yeah, it's probably, yeah, it's profitable. I mean, it didn't it didn't used to be. It's it's uh, it's it's been a long uh, process for us to. I mean, it's always been possible, obviously, but it's never. It was never like it is now, where we're you know we're making you know I made more money. I made more money personally in 2012 than I've ever made you know ever made by a wide margin. And the the, the you know our team operation. We 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 were number one in our office last year. We were number three in the state for uh, for Remax, and um, we still actually have made more money in the past you know years back when we had. Uh, you know, 04, 05, our, our team made more money. We had more. We had, you know, two buyer agents. We had, um, four, we had one time we had three assistants. Uh, so we had a huge staff. So we made more money, but it wasn't until I went through the process of the market tanking. And, and right when I bought the team is when the market tanked. So that was a great experience for me to, to kind of have to ride, you know, my feet in my pants. <laughs> it's like, I have a learning experience. So it wasn't until then that I realized that, um, that, you know, I can actually I can actually do enough in my time to generate more revenue. So I don't have like I don't have a buyer agent, for instance, on purpose, which I get in arguments with other agents a lot about that. I, I do not, I do not have a buyer agent because I I prefer just to do it myself, uh, and, I, and I'm I'm good enough at it now to where it doesn't require for me to work with a buyer, for instance. It doesn't require me to spend five days in the car, you know, like I used to, you know, ten years ago. I understand enough now to where I can show a buyer seven or eight properties with the most, or or, or in the case of an investor, no properties at all. That's the key thing. Investors don't have to show them anything. So I don't need a buyer's agent. I mean, I, I could do it myself. Occasionally, Kyle will help out with the, um, he does a lot of deals now himself too on the buyer side. So, you know, there's not a need for me to have buyer's agents. And buyer's agents, you know, in in my opinion, they're, if your goal is to have a large operation that makes sense, my goal is to have a boutique operation. I want to work with my goal is to eventually work with just a very small number of uh, of uh, clients that are more uh, they're 100% referral based because they're easier to deal with and they're more enjoyable to deal with, and then you can do more without having to staff up necessarily. So I've learned the value of, of profitability. So yes, we're profitable. To answer your question, we yeah you know, uh, we grossed uh, uh, 570,000 commissions last year, and I took home 142. So you know it's you know that's far. I mean my, my brother and I are equal partners, so we take home the same amount of money. So the vast majority of our income goes directly to to payroll, which is which is us. I mean, we're you know we're, we're payroll. I mean, we, he and I are on payroll, so you know we we actually keep uh, we kept uh, three out of five dollars uh, business uh, generated last year, which is pretty you know, substantial for a you know for a group operation. I just ran a number you mentioned real quick, and it looks to me like your net profit margin, the the profit as a percentage of the gross, is around fifty percent. Does that sound right? Uh yeah. It, it's it's it's, it's we, we don't spend money. See, our expenses are payroll. So that's the thing. And again, there's two, there's only three people on payroll and my brother and I, who, who are 50, 50 partners in the business now, you know, where we actually you know, are, you know, obviously we have the vast majority of payroll. So, um, our, our business is designed to make us money. <laughs> you know, I used to care a lot about, about winning it. Like, you know, we were number one last year in the office, which, which is, you know, exciting for the team. And I like it as well. It doesn't drive me like it used to where I want to be, well, you know, I want to be in a, you know, cause I can hire two buyer agents to be, Diamond Club every year probably, but you know I, I don't I don't want to oversee people I don't want to oversee buyers agents I want to make money period, and I don't mind working with buyers because you know after you know ten years I can do it efficiently, um, so our job is just generating profitability that's all we look at we all spend a lot of money in marketing because we focus on a business that doesn't require you to, and one of the problems I have with real estate as an industry is that people tend to spend money first instead of making profit first. So like this year, we're going to spend more money in marketing than we have in the past because we have the profitability to do so. So you know, I can I can spend more a little bit more money in marketing this year to try to to you know go that little bit next level. And our goal this year is to make a million dollars. It's worth a million dollars this year, and so we got to spend a little money on marketing to do that. 
but you know the the main purpose is to create a referral based business to where you can keep those expenses low as possible while keeping your staffing low and also generate more profitability. Yeah, fifty percent is a strong net. That's fantastic. Yeah, it'll be more. It'll be more this year, by the way. It'll be much. It'll be higher this year. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned a few times that you. You bought the team. You bought a team back in, what, was it 2005 or six. I'd like to ask you just real quick about that because people are always asking me how to value a team and then how do you make the payout. So how did you all decide to – how did you come about valuing uh, I don't, don't want to talk about and, that. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, no, I didn't know. It was, it was, uh, it, it, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I, I bought with a partner at the time. Uh, who, I mean, it's not a partner now. It's, it's just, it was just a um, – yeah, I always tell people that because uh, I talk, I get asked out frequently too, actually. But but it's it's very very difficult to buy a real estate operation unless unless both parties really know what they're doing, and and we neither party really knew what we were doing at the time, so it, it didn't you know I you know we, I survived I guess you would say, uh, but I didn't thrive and for the first few years. I had to kind of make some changes to kind of get to that point. But uh, when I when I but part of the problem is when I bought the team is right when the market tanks. So you know I bought a team. Uh, you know when the market changes, it's difficult enough to adjust sometimes. And re- I mean usually, but when I'm taking over an operation with with people in place, it's it's tough. So we we lost buyer agents through attrition. Like I said, I never replaced them. So over the next uh, next couple of years, we lost our buyer agents, and I just never replaced them. Just did it myself. And we lost staffing, and like I said, went from having three assistants to one. And uh, my partner left as well. Which but every time, every person that left, it was actually it helped me in some ways, if that makes sense. It was a situation where I was able to to kind of reset the uh, the table, because in some ways it's harder to take over a business that was already rolling because the market changed. So I was able to kind of adjust with the market. I brought my brother in, uh, you know, a couple of years later uh, into the business uh, as a part of the partner. Because I trust him to, because we have the same value system, which is key when you have a partner. Uh, so you have to have the same values where you, where you're. Uh, and I'm not talking about you know being a good person. I'm talking about your, that your your values in terms of how you, what you want to accomplish with the business itself. And you know, so we both have the same idea of, uh, in terms of value, what we want to get out of our, our business, and also how we want to provide uh, service to the to the people that we work with. So bringing him on was key. So I went through about like a three-year you know process of of just kind of getting by, really, quite honestly. Until uh, until you know we kind of figured our ways through uh, the market and uh, and it was great it was a great experience for me I mean it's, it's the most valuable experience I've ever had is not knowing how I'm gonna make payroll I mean that's it's one of the things where I was you know, I was, you know if you don't if you don't know the experience of not knowing how you're gonna make payroll and the finding way to do it it's like it, there's no there's no um, it's not you know it's different to take care of yourself because you know I, you know me is, is easy when you have other families that rely on you, it, it changes your your perspective on things and so now I, I never get stressed about anything anymore. But I never get stressed about things uh, really anything like that. And we boom every last uh, three years have just been a boom for us. Every year we get we get better and better and better um, because we become more efficient and we, and I always in my mind think about do I need payroll to do it and do I really really need to add that payroll and I don't do it and we end up being more profitable as a result. And we don't work our people to the bone or anything. I mean, they work normal hours. It's just, you know, we, we try to, you know, be a little bit more efficient if we can. Uh, we try to focus on, you know, what can we, uh, you know, what can we do to generate a little bit more revenue here without having to uh, increase our, our labor responsibilities, if that makes sense. And so, you know, if I have to sell 50 investor homes without showing them, I mean, that, that's a great way to, to increase your profit margin without having to uh, hire a buyer's agent, per se, or even a showing agent. So that's the kind of stuff I learned from that process of buying a team and going through the learning curve of, uh, of running a team, and then you know, I was, yeah, I was, you know, I was 24 when I bought the team, so it was, you know, it was a, it was a, <laughs> you know, it was a, it was kind of a, a crazy thing when you think about it. But uh, 
Um, it was a great experience. And in terms of answering your original question, because I didn't answer it, how to value a team, I have no idea, really. I mean, <laughs> let's put it this way. If, if you're buying a team that um, I, I paid for goodwill for the team, which was a, which was a mistake, because um, you know, goodwill is very difficult to value. I mean, you could, you could pay somebody based on a multiple, like if you're buying a, you know, like a, a restaurant, like a brick-and-mortar business, you can pay them based on multiple of, of revenue. But real estate is not you – know, real estate is, is, so, is so personal in terms of how the business is run. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's you. It's all about your abilities. I mean, if, if you're buying a team that's entirely based on, uh, an opera, based on something that you're not comfortable with doing, uh, then it's, it's not worth it to you. And like, even, even buying a property management business, I mean, property management businesses are very difficult to buy because if somebody has a management business where every client they've taken on is based on their own way they want to do real estate business, and you take them on and you have people that you don't really have a, you know, you're on the same page with, it can be a nightmare scenario. It really can be. And that's why I've, I've learned the importance of building your business from scratch. If you buy a business, you know, you know make sure you keep the, if you got to make payments, Make sure they're extremely affordable payments. That's a mistake I made too. Make sure they're very affordable payments, to where if you're going to make a payment back to either them or if you take out uh, a debt. You know, in my opinion, when you start a business, you want to avoid debt at all costs, especially real estate, because real estate is not a business that requires you to spend a lot of money to make money. It really doesn't. So if you're going to take on, if you're going to buy a business to try to get a jump start on, on it, and you take on a huge payment every month, in my opinion, it's a, it's a tremendous mistake. I mean, you're, you're because you can go, I mean, worst case scenario, you really can go a whole open house five days a week, and you, can, you, you should be able to sell a house, especially if you're in a market like right now where there are a lot of buyers out there. Uh, all it takes is you using your brain. I mean, you, you can go and sell a house without, without effort. So if you're going to spend a ton of money on buying something, you better get a tremendous return right off the bat. Sean, what drives you? What drives me today is different than what drove me five years ago. Today, I'm driven by eliminating, I'm driven by freedom, and you know, my well, I'm not married. I don't have kids, so I'm not. You know, it's not the same. You know, as, uh, I guess uh, standard answer you might get. For me, it's more um, freedom uh, from everything. You know, I'm, I, I grew, we, we grew up lower middle class uh, at best, so you know, we never had money. So you know, when I when I got into real estate at 17, it was a whole different. Even just being in our office, it was a very different exposure for me to you know people that that uh, made money for a living, and you know. Most of my family, all my family, really, they're you know uh, outside the people I work you know work with. It's you know they're not financially stable. It's it's just, it's a cycle that keeps on repeating uh, through generations of of living month to month of of always being in debt. Uh, you always have to have a, you know, this mindset. You always need debt, but you don't need debt. And you know when you go enough debt, one one day hopefully you realize that. And I and I came to that realization many years ago. So my my what drives me is being totally independent from having to uh, worry about money. Per se, and you know, take care of my family as much as I can as well. I mean, it's not a, it's not a, a selfish thing, but I, I do want to be able to, to um, do whatever I want to do without having to do it just to make a, a paycheck, if that makes sense. And that's what drives me. And really, real estate, it's, a, it's just, a, it's a wonderful business to do that because you have the ability to control your income. And you really do. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't matter what the market does. It doesn't matter if the market tanks or if it's going up. There's always opportunities and people that need you if you have something to offer, and you can always uh, you can always make money that way. And that's what we've done, and that's what drives me, uh, you know, every day really. And my, my, and my brother and I are on the same with the same value system that way, which is key for a partner. We both want to be free of financial uh, concerns. We both want to retire from real estate at, a, at an early age, you know, like the next five years, at early age. Uh, and it's not to me, not to me. I don't enjoy real estate or I don't want to do it. It's just you know, it's not. If I, if I do it, I'll do it because I want to do it just purely for, you know, my own you know, pleasure, if you will, not because I have to make a paycheck, if that makes sense. Uh, that's what I mean by retirement. If, if I decide to work, it's just because I want to, not because I have to. And we're, we're going to be there, we're gonna be there uh, actually ahead of schedule at this rate, which is, which is really exciting for us. 
Sean, why have you been so successful? I, I would say maybe because I, I take advantage of opportunities when they provide, when they're available. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, ever, ever since I first got that internship back at age 17, where I was one of, you know, four people that could, uh, uh, they had the opportunity to get it. And I was the only person who applied. <laughs> I kind of was a set the tone for the rest of my life since, because it's like, you know, sometimes you, their opportunities are there, but people just don't take it. I don't know why people just don't take advantage of them. And when the market was booming, I took advantage by becoming a partner in the team when I could have just, you know, Asked for two dollars an hour. You know, I could ask for two dollars more an hour. I said I became partner in the team, which was which was a critical element to making more income at a young age. Um, I, was, I was made, you know, I was making six figures at nineteen. So I mean that that the opportunity was there, so I took advantage of the opportunity. Then I took advantage of the opportunity to buy the team, even though it wasn't a. I would say that that particular decision was a huge success, but I think had I not made that decision then that I wouldn't be where I am today for sure. I mean, that was a, you know, I had to go through that process of that trial by fire of, uh, of you know, kind of jumping into being an owner of, of, a, of a business at that stage to learn the lessons that I use today. So that opportunity was available. I took advantage of it when, when maybe other people would not have. And then, you know, the market tanks uh, and we, we take advantage of the, of the people that are actually available to buy, which are investors. So it's always like you, you, when the market, uh, there, there are people in my office, uh, older people who I respect a great deal and who I like, but they, they see they see the world in real estate through trying to change the world, you know, trying to, you know, get lost, change and try to fix this and fix that. And I, I always see it through based on what are my opportunities to to uh, provide a service in order, in order to obviously make money. But if you provide a service, you're always, you're, you're always taken care of. If you're providing a valuable service. So I don't, I don't spend time thinking about the world at large, you know, being in, in you know, the laws I don't like or the, or the, or the you know, that uh, bank rebels are tough to sell or short sales are difficult to deal with. I say, okay, they, the market needs me to do this, so I'm going to do it. And that's been my attitude uh, for many years in real estate. If you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Uh, I would. I, would that's what I actually do tell people all the time. And the first thing I would do is go get a, a database manager, uh, even if it's a, you know, it could be Microsoft Excel. If you don't have any money, I mean, be, I mean something on a computer would be ideal. But uh, I would tell them first. I would tell them to go get a database management system immediately and type every single human being that you know on a first name basis into that system and categorize them based on who you know would actually go and champion for you and have the ability to send you a referral. So it could be a, uh, you know, an ex-co-worker, a family member, whoever it may be. Uh, try to create categories like I do, which is uh, whatever you want to call them, doesn't matter, but people that you know who actually has the ability to send you business. Talk to them immediately, take them out to lunch, have a you know, breakfast, whatever you need to do, make sure they know you're in real estate and that you want them to send you referrals. I found so many people that are new in real estate, it's like they're afraid to ask for business. It's amazing. It's like, well, I'm new, so they're not going to work with me because, uh, you know, it's amazing how many deals I've done in real estate where the client personally knows someone in real estate, like a, like a, like a friend, a family friend. It could be even someone they're related to. And they don't use them. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. It's it, people will people will use you if you provide a value over anybody else. Doesn't matter who they know. So create that database first off, and make sure that you categorize people. Make sure that you reach out to people that are in that A group or VIP group, and make sure you really uh, make the time to explain to them. Uh, what you do and, and, and that you need their help. And also make sure you make the time to call them and ask them for a referral on, on a regular basis. And what I would say is your number one priority is to make that list bigger. So if the list is 20 people that you know, or 10 people, it doesn't matter. Your goal is to make that list bigger. And that's why you do whatever you can do for free that makes that a bigger list. 
and do lead generation. You know, if you have to go hold an open house you know, five days a week and get 10 people on that list every single week to follow up with, then that's your goal. And your goal is always to get people, uh, get leads to convert to prospects as much as you can and eventually get that list bigger. And my, my firm belief is the future of real estate is in who you know. It's not, it's not you know, SEO, real websites, all that stuff is great. But the world is getting closer to where people really, you know, they they really have the ability to refer. It could be it could be Yelp, it could be Facebook, it could be anything. But it's your ability to know people is what's going to keep you um, uh, in business. Sean, do you think the top agent interviews, like the one you're doing right now with Mastermind Agent, are valuable? Oh yeah, of course, uh, no question. I mean, you you have to understand. You have to listen to people that are actually doing it. You know, like you could take a class. I mean, we've all taken real estate class. We've all taken real estate classes. And uh, but I've always found the most value I've ever gotten was from listening to uh, recordings like this. Just listening to people that are actually doing it every day. That are that are normal people. I mean, we're not. You know, these aren't. Yeah. The, the realization I had was that people that are making seven figures in real estate are not all rocket scientists. I mean, some probably are. But for the most part, they're not. They're not uh, any smarter than you are. They just take advantage of one opportunity or another, or they heard a great idea, or they take the time to actually uh, reach out. And I'm amazed how many realtors don't take the time to go to someone that's in real estate already and ask them what they do, because people usually will tell you if you ask. I mean, you know, it's amazing how often that that happens. But um, yeah, these these interviews are great. I mean, I think they're tremendous, and not not just for new agents. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter how long you've been in real estate. Uh, you you always want to make sure you're kind of are staying on top of what other people are doing. Uh, just to kind of give us that, that inspiration of what else you can be uh, doing as well. Because I, I tell you that, you know, the things that we've done that made the most money, which is little light and probably management, just, a, just sitting in a, in, a, in, a, in a class, listening to a realtor, explain everything that went wrong for him, uh, inspired me to, you know, start a business that you know, generates, uh, you know, over $300,000 a year. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's really just that simple, honestly. Had I not sat in that class, I probably would never have done property management. And, I, and that, you know, I, who, how much did that cost me, really? Well, Sean, it's truly amazing what we can learn by listening to the top agents. You launched a super successful investor-based business. You recognized the opportunity in your market and jumped to fill the need. You've developed a consistent income stream with your property management, plus huge lump sums of profit through your sales. Your investor-focused model is impressive. I have no doubt you'll hit your seven-figure goal. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who shifted to luxury homes and moved up her average price to the top 5% in her market. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. 
And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.